Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If I had to sum up the entire history of grace in just one idea, it wouldn't be easy, but the idea that I would come back to is that God has been teaching us to trust in him alone. That may seem like generic Christian boilerplate language. Everybody is seeking to trust God more. But what I mean is God has taken a group of really talented and committed people who possess a lot of resources and strength, and he has led them through a process of of repeated failure and frustration until we finally learn to give up on the idea that we were bringing a lot to the table, that we were doing a lot for God's sake, and instead had to trust him for everything. Not just for the stuff that we weren't good at, we had to learn to trust him for the stuff we thought we were good at. In other words, we had to be humbled over time. And as God humbles you, he does something else. He gives you comfort. He gives you something to lean on. And if you were looking for something in scripture to lean on, uh, the place to look is in the Psalms. We'll look at Psalm 69 this morning, but the entire book of Psalms is God's songbook. The, the words that have been inspired so that they might be on our lips as an expression of our hearts. I think, as I was saying earlier, that when we reflect on our past, we reflect on an anniversary like this, what we tend to think about are, are the achievements, the accomplishments, the milestones Like we could take the history of our church and put it on a graph and say, oh, look, attendance went up or giving went up or something went up. And over time, things, you know, got better and whatever. That's not a very human way of thinking about our history, though. When you think back about the time that we've had together as a community, I hope that what stands out to you is not the metrics, I hope that what stands out to you are the experiences, and some of those experiences uh, were hard. I don't think since I've been a pastor of a church, which hasn't been very long, I don't think I've had more sleepless nights than ever before. I used to sleep really well for a long time, and now I'll find myself waking up in the middle of the night and being able or unable to go to sleep. And, And when I've tried everything else, when I've exhausted every other option, reluctantly, I'll open the Bible and I'll begin to read. Early in the morning when I should be asleep, I find myself in the Psalms, being comforted by God because there was literally no other comfort that would do it. I think you've been following Christ long enough to have had that same experience to have opened up your Bible, to spend time with the Lord, not because it was your duty, not because good Christians are meant to do this, but because you just had no other comfort. Because you needed that time in the Word. You needed that time with the Psalms. If you think about it that way, you could actually look back at our history and you could think of it as like a record of sleepless nights. Like over the years, what have we lost sleep over? What has troubled us? What cares have we borne? Not just our own cares, but but as a church, what burdens have we borne for others? 
that's another way of thinking about our history. I guess what I'm trying to say is the book of Psalms is a good companion for sleepless nights. In fact, I think it's fair to say that you don't really know the Psalms. You don't really understand the Psalms until you've had to rely upon them as a lifeline. You don't really know the songs of Scripture until you've had to sing them in order to sing yourself to sleep. Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. An anatomy of all the parts of the soul, meaning that, that all of the, the, the range of human emotion, the things that we feel, the things that we struggle with, whether it's our, our, our sadness or our exaltation, that all of those emotions and feelings are to be found in the songs of Scripture. That's why the Psalms offer special comfort to troubled souls. And Psalm 69, I think, captures something importance for all believers, but I'm going to say, especially for grace, especially for this community, Psalm 69 speaks to us in a special way. It's a song that you can identify with deeply, as we'll see, even though the biographical details won't fit your life perfectly. The soul landscape, the, the, the things of the heart you'll find will overlap in surprising ways. You didn't live the life of King David, but somehow the longings of King David are longings that you share. But the psalm does more than just give voice or or like put your troubles into words, give your soul a voice. It also reminds you of your true hope. But to see that, we need to kind of look at the whole thing. Sometimes when, when I'm preaching, I'll go line by line carefully through the text and always with the understanding that that's in some ways an unnatural way to go. Like people didn't receive the epistle to the Romans and, and read it, you know, a line at a time week after week until a couple of years later they got through it. They just gobbled it all down. And a, a song is like that. You kind of need the whole thing in order to feel the range of the emotion that that song contains. So Psalm 69 is a song. If you look at it in your Bible, you'll find a subheading underneath. It says Psalm 69, to the choir master, according to lilies of David. So it's a song of David. It's being handed over, written down, and given to the choir master to be used in worship. And there's even an instruction on what tune you're meant to sing this to, and the tune is called lilies. Uh, it's not the only psalm that is set to that lost tune, but it gives you a kind of context. This is meant to be sung. When you sing a song, it works a little differently than when you read prose. You sing a song and you identify with it. You put yourself into the place of the narrator in a way that you don't necessarily when you're reading an epistle or, or some doctrine. Right? With a song, you enter into the text in a different way. So if you start at the beginning of Psalm 69, the words of David are words that uh, you can place yourself in. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, he writes. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting 
for my God. This is a song for those who feel overwhelmed, feel like you're drowning. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Uh, The word that's translated here as neck in Hebrew is nephesh, which you may remember is the word for soul as well, uh, or life. So my very life is threatened. My soul is threatened as being overwhelmed and covered up. Can you relate to that? That sense of, of having a hard time staying above the water, crying out to God for deliverance, but, but nothing changes so that, as he says, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I can relate to that. I think you can too. Pleading with deliverance or pleading that God will do something, that God will change the circumstances. David prays a prayer for help. Maybe you haven't used the same words in praying to God, but the the feelings are the same. If we skip a little bit further down to verse 13, you get a flavor for these pleas, these cries that David gives. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the floods sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I'm in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. We've all cried out to God for deliverance in this way. We've all felt what it's like to wait upon the Lord, even though the biographical details may not fit. And there are things about this as you work through it that that you start thinking, well, okay, that's not exactly my situation. David, yes, that's true for you, but for me, not so much. For example, David has a lot of enemies. And as the song progresses, he has a lot of thoughts about his enemies. When he sings about his enemies, maybe you can't identify. I sing these words and I say to myself, well, I don't really have enemies. I'm not really surrounded by people who hate me without cause, who attack me with lies, who want to destroy me. But that's what David says. This is going back to verse 4. He says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? How can I pay back what I don't owe? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. When I read these words, I, I distance myself from David. And I'm like, no, Lord, I know, I know. I'm not, I'm not surrounded by enemies. And, and to sing it without saying that to myself, I start to feel like maybe I don't want God to think I have delusions of grandeur. I don't want God to think I think I'm some Old Testament prophet or Old Testament king and everyone is against me or something like that. Uh, so, so I find myself qualifying it and saying, no, Lord, I know. It's not like that. They don't hate me. They just, you know probably don't know I exist, you know, that sort of thing. You, you qualify it. And yet there's also this weird thing where even though the biography doesn't fit somehow, like the pattern of the heart does, I don't understand it because when I read the words, 
and I say, well, that doesn't fit my situation, my heart doesn't agree and say, yeah, you're right. You've never felt that. Instead, it's the opposite. Even though I look around and I say, I'm not besieged the way that David does, I'm like, and yet I do feel it. I do feel it. It does speak to what I feel. And then in verse 5, when when he says, oh God, you know my folly, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. It makes perfect sense because as you're calling out your enemies to God, you want to make sure that he knows that you know that you're not without fault. I'm not saying I'm perfect and they're not. That's, that's not it. That rings true to me. David even sees himself as suffering on God's behalf because of his faithfulness to God. And that's one of those things you may wonder about for yourself. Am I suffering because of my faith or am I just suffering because of who I am or what I've done? Is it Jesus in me that they hate or is it just me? But listen to David's words in verse six. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Don't let my fellow believers be put to shame because of me. Like don't let me fail those who rely upon me. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Do not let those who are seeking you be blinded by my actions. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Again, you've lived a different life, but your soul identifies with the pain. In verse 9, he writes, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. In other words, even doing the right thing, the pious thing backfires. My attempts to humble myself, to do what is right, those very things have made me a laughingstock. My tears, my humiliation becomes a subject for criticism. Your pain isn't just not felt by others, but is mocked. And no one understands As David describes it, it's the pity that others ought to feel for you is absent. The community that should come around you never materializes and you're alone. So bad, he says, the people who should feed you instead poison you. Verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And then the psalm takes a turn, and David begins to think of his enemies and what they deserve. And this, I think, is the hardest part of the psalm as you identify, as you you enter into it, because already you feel like, I don't know, I don't know that I have enemies. And then when you hear the words that that David speaks, it's like, "Mm, I don't want this to happen to anyone. And yet, this is speaking to my soul. In verse 22, he writes, 
let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Wow. That's, that's difficult stuff. Things you think, I wouldn't work, want that. I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy. And yet, the Psalms are the anatomy of the human soul, and it speaks to a longing for justice that we feel. Having been wronged, we want to see those wrongs righted and want justice to be done. And all of that is true, not just for David, but true for us as well. But here's where the Psalm takes a turn, an interesting turn as we approach the end, a turn towards worship. Starting in verse 29, we find out that uh, not only do the Psalms explore the depths of the human soul, entering into its unexplored places, but they also take us where we need to be, which is to our knees. Starting in verse 29, David says, But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy. If those words sound familiar to you, they were our call to worship at the beginning of this service. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. That was our assurance of pardon. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. So there's a movement in the psalm, and it's important to see. It's the reason why we've kind of zipped through, zoomed out, instead of zoomed in. Because there's a movement through suffering, a movement towards kind of that yearning for deliverance, finally to a yearning for justice, but then a turn to worship. A turn to worship. You might say it's a movement from subjective experience to objective reality. There's a subjectivity to the first part of Psalm 69 as we enter into the experience, the life of David, and we feel what he feels, and it resonates in our souls. Even if our lives have been different historically, our souls can, can understand the experience. David has spoken for us. He's given a voice to our longings. But then... He brings us from that subjective experience into the objective presence of the God who saves. 
the solution to the problem, the end of the exploration. It's not to have all of the doubts answered, all of the worries settled, all of the anxiety removed. The answer, it turns out, is to turn to God and to worship him, to turn to God and to sing his praise. We will never find comfort or confidence by scouring our own souls. We only find that in turning to God. We only find comfort and confidence in pouring out our souls before him and basing our comforts on his promises. That's where those final words come in, that last stanza. We will dwell in and possess the promise, and our offspring will inherit and dwell in the promise, not because we deserve to, but because, as David says, God will save Zion. God will save Zion. That's why there will be dwelling, possession, and inheritance. Not because we're worthy, but because we love his name. And if that's all there was to this song, it would be a good song, and it would resonate. But you can go through this song, and you can place yourself in it, and you can can hear the words speaking to you and be exalted by them and still miss what the psalmist is really singing about. This isn't the kind of song we think it is, in other words. How is it possible that King David writing in ancient times can pen words that we can so easily identify with? How is it that we can slip so seamlessly into this song and sing it as if it were about us? Ironically, it's because it's not about us at all. The reason we can identify with it so fully is that it's not about us. It's not even about David. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. The subject of the song is Jesus. The lily of the song is the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. In Psalm 69, David writes as a type of Christ. He gives voice to the experience of Jesus. And in the New Testament, New Testament authors cite this psalm to explain what's happening in the life of Christ. It was Jesus who was hated without cause by his enemies. It was Jesus whose enemies sought to destroy him with lies. It was Jesus who was consumed by zeal for the Lord's house, so much so that he drove the money changers out of the temple. And when he did it, the apostles saw it and said, ah, it's like that song we learned as kids. Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's why it is his passion for the house of the Lord. It is Christ Jesus who bore the reproach in God's name that those who hated God hated him. He's the one that bore that burden. It was Jesus who on the cross when he thirsted was not given water to drink but sour wine. Something, a detail as literal as that anticipated in Psalm 69. As we continue through the book of Romans, in Romans 11, we'll find that even these words speaking about enemies, let their table become a snare and a trap. These are the words Paul quotes to explain what's happening to Israel. 
in his day. That, too, is prophesied. The trap was set for the enemies of Jesus. It is those who despise Jesus whose names are not written in the book of life. And what that means is the song is not what it seems like at first. When I first came to Psalm 69, it was exactly in the way that that I've described to you. A sleepless night, flipping through the book of Psalms, looking for one that was short, reading a few short ones and needing more psalm because somehow the sleeplessness wouldn't go, finding this psalm and suddenly feeling as if these were the words to speak my desire, my longing to God. And I got through the whole thing and never realized that these weren't my words, they weren't David's words, they were Christ's. That the experience was Christ's. You thought it was a song about what you'd suffered. You thought it was a song about your pain. You thought it was a song about what you've gone through. And it turns out it's better than that. It's better than that. It is a song about what Jesus has suffered, what Jesus has endured and gone through for you. And that's why it could be a comfort on a sleepless night. Because whatever pain keeps us awake, whatever anxiety, we find that Christ was there before us. And Christ is there with us. Matthew Henry wrote that in singing this psalm, Psalm 69, we must have an eye to the sufferings of Christ and the glory that followed, not forgetting the sufferings of Christians too and the glory that shall follow them. For it may lead us to think of the ruin reserved for the persecutors and the rest reserved for the persecuted. So both things are true. I'm not saying to you, you read Psalm 69 and you identified, but you were wrong because it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Because it's about Jesus, it's about you too. Because in that suffering, in that sleeplessness, in that troubling of the soul, we find him. We meet with him and he becomes our lifeline. When we come to this final stanza, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Those are promises Those are promises that we claim and worship. And they are not just promises for us as individuals, just for us as as single, sleepless souls. These are promises for us as a people. Promises for us as a community whose hearts have been knit together by grace. The city that God is building is the church. Scripture says God is building a dwelling place for himself, a place that will house his glory, and the bricks that he's building it out of are human beings. The walls of the structure, the edifice, it's us. He's building a home for himself out of us. And if we are the fabric, if we are the the bricks, the clay, the mortar that his house is built from, then it signals his intention to dwell with us and to be our God. And that's the work 
that we celebrate today. That's the work that we see all around us. Not a work that we have done or a work that we were deserving of, but something God has done, something God is doing for us. And if that's true, then by definition, it will be a dwelling place for us. By definition, it will be our possession, not to be taken from us. By definition, it will be an inheritance to those who come after us, to everyone, David says, who loves the name of Jesus. I said before that the most important lesson that we've learned over the years is is to trust in God. But we can be more specific about that. The most important lesson that we've learned is not just to trust in God more, it is to love the name of Jesus more. We have been taught to love his name above all things. That's why we exist. That's what God is doing in us. And that's the reason that we have cause to celebrate. Because that's a work that is founded on Christ Jesus, that is founded on the promises of God, which will come to pass. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.